Coming up this hour, we have more coronavirus news. We're going to talk specifically about the church. And then we have Lewis Dooley joining us, the author of Prison Saved My Life. I recommend it for everyone. That's coming up next on The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. Coming to you live once again from my treehouse. I can't stop, won't stop. It is as long as I can. I think I'm going to. Brian, I know that you're not in a treehouse, but you're you're looking out a nice window at least. You're like taking in this lovely Friday weather. Is that true? I am. I'm up in my bedroom overlooking my neighbor's yard, so I can open a window. So at least it feels a little treehouse-ishy, but you're definitely winning with the treehouse. There's no doubt, but, uh, but tree, my setup's not tree bad. Treehouse-ishy? Are we going to? Yep. Yep. That's like a treehouse, you know? <laughs> hmm, ish and E. All right. I like, I like that. I like, where, I like where your head's at. A couple of things. Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles. It's also where you can send us messages if you have suggestions for future shows. Also, you can get our podcast wherever it is you get podcasts. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing both the Facebook page and the podcast actually helps us out a whole lot. Plus, we're on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk and 1160hope.com slash the Common Good. I wanted to start the show. I got four articles in here, and they're all coronavirus related. I mean, I know that a lot of our shows as of late have included a healthy dose of coronavirus news. So this is not meant necessarily for us to take a deep dive into any one four of these, but I thought they were all mm, noteworthy, newsworthy. And uh, I'll let you sort of just pick at random which one you want to talk about first, and we'll just sort of work through it that way. Well, I wanted to do the salad bar one first at the grocery store, but it feels like the bigger story today is uh, that not long before we came on the air, uh, President Trump uh, got very forceful about deeming houses of worship as essential, and he threatened to override governors that don't open churches, which obviously this is big news for you and I, uh, but I'm very confused by this because I'm under the understanding that the president doesn't have that power and that it's still state governors. But I've started getting texts from people all excited or what does this mean? And I'm like, I don't really know. And so is that your understanding, though? It's still up to the governor, right? We still got to live by those guidelines unless we're just going to break the law, obviously. Uh, or Yeah, I don't, uh, think it, I don't think it's that cut and dry, but I, I don't know enough to speak intelligently to it. Yeah, I think that we're probably going to need to learn because obviously this, as we said, just came down in the last hour or two or three. Uh, but uh, the gov- uh, the president, you know, and you could pick your reason why. Uh, he seems to have staked a, a hill to die on here with houses of worship, and he's going really hard for those. So it's going to be at least interesting uh, to follow this. Um, but, yeah, I even had somebody text me, hey, he said he's going to override the governors. I was like, I don't think he has that power. I don't think he can do that. Anyway, it's going to be something interesting. This is like within the last hour or two, as I said. And for those of you who are churchgoers out there, it's uh, it's something worth watching right now for sure. Well, and it's it's posted on the Facebook page, too. So if you want to weigh in on that, if there's a uh, perspective that you have or context that you're aware of, we we would love to learn. We won't pretend to know more than we actually do. And that is definitely going to be a conversation that a lot of people will be having this weekend. You mentioned earlier another one from CNN, a grocery store chain filled its salad bar with beer, cereal (laughs) and candy because of coronavirus. If you stepped foot in a grocery store lately, you know, things around your local shop look a little different as retailers take steps to slow the spread of coronavirus. This includes the loss of the community salad bar. It's among the many changes that grocery store chains are making to keep people safe, including taking workers' temperatures and limiting the number of customers. So this is in Missouri, but something that I imagine that we'll see 
maybe elsewhere. The photo is, I don't know why it's so jarring, but because I'm, you're so, it's got literally the sign that says salad bar and then an X through it. And then just a glorious display of Budweiser and Miller High Life. And um, <laughs> it is, it's strange. It's the kind of thing I wonder if we'll like look back on pictures like these 30 years from now and be like, oh, yeah, that was a weird year. I, I think for a lot of reasons, we're going to think this was a really weird year. But it, we did a story a couple of weeks ago, right, about will salad bars even exist after the coronavirus? Like, is this something that you would do, right? Go up to where other people have been. Uh, putting their hands or whatever. And, and that's an interesting, I love a good salad bar, but that could go away. So this is this, uh, at least in the short term, this grocery store trying to make the best of it and filling you, up. You beer, love a good salad bar? I do. I do. When was the last time you were, you were at a salad bar? Oh, certainly pre-coronavirus, but, uh, you know, but not just a straight salad bar, kind of like a, you know, like a pizza buffet, an old country buffet, something like that. Uh, but also <laughs> uh, a straight salad, salad bar. bar? I like a salad bar. I do. Yeah, that might surprise you. I do like just a good, a good hearty bowl of salad from a salad bar. I do. I, the mini I believe you, but you, you still haven't answered the question. When was the last time you actually were at a salad bar? I have no idea. That I can't answer. <laughs> I can't. I find myself having a hard time remembering anything pre-lockdown. Uh, <laughs> mm, I get it. All right, you want to take this next story? Yeah, uh, this one's from NPR. Uh, Facebook expects half its employees to work remotely permanently. <clears throat> so CEO Mark Zuckerberg said he expects half of the tech giant's 48,000 employees to be working remotely in the next five to 10 years as part of a major shift in how companies operate. The company plans to begin, quote, aggressively hiring remote workers, and it will assume allow current employees to apply to work remotely on a permanent basis, the CEO said. Zuckerberg said, we're going to be the most forward-leaning company on remote work for our scale, but we're going to do this in a way that's measured and thoughtful and responsible to the phases over time. Just fascinating. A huge company, right? Almost 50,000 employees saying that in the next five to 10 years, we expect half of our people to work remotely. That's just a huge shift. I was talking to someone anecdotally yesterday who said they had three different friends in different professions who said all of their companies have come to them and said, yeah, you're not coming back to the office. You're going to work from home now for good. Like, I think this is going to only pick up steam more and more. Do you think there are other implications of that? Like, will we see environmental benefits or travel benefits, road strength benefits? Like, what, what are some of the other things you think if this is a trend that a lot of companies pick up on? You would think so. You would think that uh, less traffic, you'd think that people would be able to be with their families more. Um, I don't know. I'm sure there's more business minded people out there who see the negative side of this. Like, uh, you know, can Facebook pay less? I don't know. I don't know why they would be able to for that. But uh, but yeah, on a very surface level, it seems like a great thing. It seems like less people on the roads, uh, more people with their families for longer. So we'll see. We'll see what it means. I think our workforce has changed. It was already changing, but this is like sped it up. So I think there's going to be uh, really interesting studies done five years from now, 10 years from now of the effect that the COVID-19 pandemic had on the workforce in general. I think it's gonna be fascinating. All right. So here's the uh, the last story I had for this first segment. Bots account for nearly half of Twitter accounts spreading coronavirus misinformation. So this is from CBS News. It says about half of the Twitter accounts pushing misinformation about COVID-19 and calling for, quote, reopening of America may be bots. Research at Carnegie Mellon University said uh, Wednesday, the tweets appear to be aiming to sow division and increase polarization 
during the pandemic. And then uh, the quote that we have here from Kathleen Carley says, conspiracy theories increase polarization in groups. It's what many misinformation campaigns aim to do. People have real concerns about health and the economy, and people are preying on that to create divides. So, again, way over my skis on this one, but does it surprise you at all, again, if these you know, accusations are actually true, that something as big as half of the misinformation being seen, particularly on Twitter, are actually bots? Like, does that surprise you at all? Or is that like, oh, yeah, that's that seems about right. You know, that surprises me. I tend to be naive about this thing. So to see a number like half is crazy to me. It's like uh, I know it's out there, although when even when you're like, you know, you're talking about bots, I'm like, what exactly is that? How does that work? You know, like for me, like, you know, Sometimes I can naively look at Facebook and Twitter and just kind of what you see is what you get. Well, that person wrote that. And there's it could be a lot more nefarious than this. And I know we all saw that with Facebook and other things and, um, you know, in some of the past elections. But, yeah, no, this totally surprises me. Uh, I know it's out there, but at this number, I didn't I wouldn't have guessed it was nearly this high. Anyway, coming up next, we're going to look at an article from The Economist that says the coronavirus is accelerating de-churching in America. We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. Coming to you live again from my treehouse. I don't know if you guys can hear this at all, but there's been, in the time that we've done the show so far today, a car alarm, (laughs) a dog, I'm assuming that was possessed by a demon, uh, three industrial lawnmowers, a baby crying, and what else? You couldn't hear any of that? No, and I remember the car alarm, but other than that, no. And the funny thing is we're only in segment two. <laughs> <laughs> we, we are not in segment two. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, I know. So one of the things that uh, I want to tell you about is a little company called Thrivent Financial. But before I do that, I'd love for Brian to tell us about some of the social aspects of the show. Yeah, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. There we post all of our articles uh, and even some articles uh, that we've uh, not even talked about on the show before. So you can comment on them and continue the conversation with other people. You can do the same at Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. You can find old shows and, you know, you can kind of see our faces at 1160hope.com. And you can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Uh, subscribe, rate, and review to the podcast. And we are super thankful for those of you who do that. And uh, I mentioned it. I'm going to mention it again. Thriving Financial. They're a Fortune 500 non-for-profit that's been around for like 100 years. I've been a member for like seven or eight years. I love the work they do. Thrivent.com is where to go to learn more. But also, if you're looking for a career change, Thrivent.com slash careers is a great place to peruse as well. And they also have a bunch of great webinars that we've been sharing on our Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. You can follow them on Facebook yourself. We don't need to be the middlemen. You can just go for it. But in general, great Christian organization. And if you're interested in either becoming more wise with your money or helping other people do the same, I would highly encourage you checking them out. Okay, so I got two articles here, Brian. Yep. And they're both about the church and coronavirus. The first came from Dan Ehrman. You know Dan, right? I do. You say Ehrman or Ehrman? How do you say? I say Ehrman, but I'm never quite sure if I'm right or not. But I'm I'm a Dan Ehrman guy. I'm a Dan Ehrman. Like that's a camp. Like people are aware of. Yep, that's right. Lay my that that's that's where I'm going with Dan Ehrman. The one he sent us says uh, the virus is accelerating de-churching in America. What's going on there? Yeah, it it gives the story of a church in Celebration Orlando that uh, ended up taking just not even really able to stay open after Disney world closed. 
Uh, and it goes on to say this kind of the broader point here is that the COVID-19 pandemic has hammered churches of all sizes and denominations across America. Most, even those encouraged their, even those that had encouraged their members to give online during the pandemic have seen their incomes plunge. Many don't have sufficient cash reserves to tide them over for more than a few months. And reopening is unlikely to bring the relief that it will to other parts of the economy, because in many churches, the majority of worshipers are old. And if a vaccine not developed, then they're less likely to come. And so the result could be a significant reduction in the number of churches in America. David Kinneman, president of Barna, uh, said this. He reckons that as many as one in five churches and maybe one in three mainline churches could close for good within the next 18 months. And he says this would represent a rapid acceleration of a long-term decline in American religiosity. So we'll pause there because basically um, how many articles have you and I done right about church uh, attendance declining nationwide, the rise of the nuns, the rise of, uh, you know, our, how many churches are going to close, but basically the COVID-19 pandemic and the closing of churches and all churches need to go online <clears throat> There's this article is hypothesizing that this just might accelerate uh, the demise uh, of a lot of churches and rise raise the number of people uh, who are de-churched or this article says unchurched people who aren't a part of a church at all. Do, do those percentages surprise you? Uh, they do not. I think that um, you could already see that that trend happening. Right. You could already see uh, before the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, a lot of especially mainline churches closing. Uh, and, and all of us have wondered what's the result of our doors being closed? Who's going to be there when we come back? Like, I'm not one of these people who's like, oh, my gosh, no one's going to be there. But there might be some people who are on the fringe of your church who aren't there anymore. They've like, well, I made it 10 weeks without going. Uh, <laughs> what? You know, I'm kind of enjoying this or whatever. And so. There's no telling what churches will look like when they come back. But as you and I talked about last week, those churches that don't have much financial margin going into the pandemic, this has probably been a very difficult time that may not be sustainable uh, by the time. Because, again, even once we're open, we're not going to be fully open. And so who knows what that's going to mean for those churches, especially. Why do you say uh, that mainline churches are probably the most at risk? Uh, it's, uh, it's often, I only say that because it seems to be every article we read seems to point that the mainline churches, uh, the decrease in attendance, the decrease in giving, the closing of churches, uh, it seems to be, they always differentiate like all churches and then the mainline seem to be happening faster. That's the only reason I said that. It seems to be the, all the articles we tend to read, including this one. Okay. Uh, this other article over at time says, should churches reopen? The answer lies in thinking of this as a time of exile. So uh, we're going to we're going to reference here. It's by N.T. Wright, who I'm a big fan of. I'm pretty unapologetic about that. It's also an Anglican. So Marcus Brown might be happy with that one. <laughs> it says when the present pandemic began to take hold, a passage from the writings of Martin Luther went the rounds on the Internet. With his usual combination of down to earth wisdom and practical piety, Luther insisted that preachers and pastors should remain at their posts. As good shepherds, they should be prepared to lay down their lives for their sheep. Quote, if God should wish to take me, he will surely find me, he wrote in a letter to a pastor friend. I have done what he has expected of me, and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely. 
as restrictions on gatherings begin to lift around the world. And this was written again before uh, President Trump made the comments he did today. Some churches are being allowed to reopen for small gatherings, while other religious leaders are unsure of whether that is the right thing to do. There are two quite different things which need to be said about opening churches, as often happens in Christian theology. We need to hear them both. So before I get into that, we don't have a whole lot of time. What might you guess are those two things that he's going to reference? Uh, I think the first one or one of them is going to have to do with the church not being a building, but being a people. Okay. And I'm going to completely guess that the second one uh, is going to have to do with, even though it's not a building, there's something to the gathering of the whole body that's important to it. So I'm going to go with those are the two ends here. Well, let me just read what he get, And then again, I won't have time to read the whole article, but there's a lot yep. of wisdom, I think, in these two points he makes. He says, first, church buildings are not an escape from the world, but a bridgehead into the world. A proper Ooh. theology of sacred space ought to see buildings for public worship as advanced signs of the time when God's glory will fill all creation. Christians should therefore celebrate every way in which the living Lord, whom they worship in church buildings, is about is out and about, bringing healing and hope far beyond the visible limits of church property. Jesus does not need church buildings for his work to go forward. Part of the answer to the question, where is God in the pandemic, must be out there on the front line, suffering and dying to bring healing and hope. But there is a second point, he says, in those countries, such as my own, where churches and other places of worship, including synagogues and mosques, have seen or have been shut for thoroughly comprehensible reasons, there's a danger of accidentally sending the wrong signal to a wider world. For the last 300 years, the Western world has largely regarded, quote, religion, the very word that has changed its meaning to accommodate its new viewpoint, as a private matter, what someone does with their solitude, but the Christian faith as a whole as a whole has been reduced in the public mind to private movement. And in that sense, so many say it should have no place in public life. And again, I think N.T. Wright is brilliant. I think he offers, especially in a time like right now, just a ton of pointed necessary wisdom. We have shared this on the Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. I highly encourage you to go read the whole thing. If you disagree or you have a difference of opinion or a different thought, we would love for you to weigh in and add some yeah. thoughts. And with the last 10 seconds we have left, Brian, what do you think? I t it's classic NT, right? There's so much here because later he's going to talk about being in the present time as an exile. I think this is great. But I think that point about the church uh, being what, you know, when we ask, where's God? And he says he's out there at the front lines. I think that's something we always have to remember. God has not been sidelined in this whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think N.T. Wright puts that so well. I would encourage people. It's a very long article. I'd encourage people to go read it. It's not that long. It's it's, it's very readable. Don't don't be scared off by that. Just go and read it. That is true. Anyway, coming up next, Lewis Dooley, who's been on the show before, actually was uh, previously sentenced to, I think, two life sentences plus 100 years, right. wrote a book called Prison Saved My Life. I recommend it for everyone. He's doing something really cool in and around Chicagoland starting next week that we want to tell you about. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the place on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles. You can send us messages if you have suggestions for future shows. You can also find us at 1160hope.com slash the common good on Instagram and Twitter at common good talk and wherever it is you get podcasts. If you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating and reviewing, all of that does truly hand on my heart, help us out a whole lot and any help that you can uh, provide would mean a whole lot to us. But I am absolutely thrilled to have on the show. I think maybe for the third time, my friend Louis Dooley, welcome back to the show, sir. 
How you doing, Ian, man? It's always a blessing to get a chance to spend some time with you and also to be on the show. Uh, thanks for doing it, man. For uh, people who maybe aren't familiar with you and your story, you've been on the show a couple of times, but would you introduce yourself to everybody? Sure. Uh, my name is Louis Dooley, and I'm blessed with the opportunity to get a chance to impact people's lives who are incarcerated in jails and prisons and also try to help them get their feet on the ground when they get out. And I like to just sum it up like this, Ian. I'm just a nobody who wants to tell everybody about somebody. Mm-hmm. So that's me in a nutshell. Well, that's awesome. I, I'm curious, uh, Lewis, how has the COVID-19 pandemic, we've heard lots of things about what it's doing in prisons, but what have you seen and heard from the people in prison during the course of this pandemic? Well, we've been shut down pretty much from going in, so I haven't oh. heard from them. However, with myself spending over 15 years in prison, I can imagine uh, what a, a, a total lockdown would look like. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where if you've been doing prison time, you've developed those muscles to be able to endure something like this. And if you haven't, then you're freaking out. So it'll mm-hmm. it'll be a mix or a hodgepodge of emotions and, and what people are thinking and what they're doing. So, Lewis, the reason that we have you on, you're doing this really cool ministry next week and it's meeting in various parking lots around Chicagoland. Uh, I want to ask you a different question before we get to that, though. You recently wrote a book called Prison Saved My Life. I recommend it for everyone. Tell us a little bit about where that book came from. Yeah, well, that just really came from me getting a chance to share um, the story of how God impacted and impacted my life. And people would say, man, you should write a book. And mm-hmm. you know, after probably five or six years, I just said, hey, maybe God is using people to tell me to write a book. And so mm-hmm. basically it's an autobiography about me and a little bit of my past um, outside of Christ, how I met Christ, and then how God was interacting with me during my incarceration and then a little bit um, of time about what's been going on in my life since I've been out. Hmm. And what impact have you been seeing the book have on people uh, as it's been out now? Man, it's crazy. I mean, I've had people tell me like crazy stuff like this changed their life. And it's like, Hmm. that's a bold statement. Anytime you hear that, (laughs) of course, I take that with a little grain of salt, but it's, it's humbling to know that, that's something that really God did in my life, right? Because it's not me that changed their life. It's what God did in me and through me that's really touching that person. And so people making statements like that, people, you know, giving good positive feedback of how it's kind of introduced um, God to them, mm. um, some for the first time, some to say, hey, it's reintroducing God to them in a different way by seeing how he moved in my life and that giving them a little bit of faith and a little bit of trust that maybe there is something this guy that created us. Man, I love that. And just to say it out loud, I, I appreciate your heart so much, man, the way that you love people and love the gospel. It just, to me, is like so evident in everything you do and kind of put your mind to, which brings me to what you're doing next week. You're calling it Prayer and Praise 2020. And the vision is to meet in various different parking lots on different days throughout Chicagoland to pray, to sing. So would, tell us a little bit more about the heartbeat behind that and maybe where people can go to learn more. Sure. Well, the, the heartbeat came from a, a few weeks ago. God just kind of impressing upon my heart as I thought about this pandemic and how it's affecting. Some people, it's not really affecting much at all other than like being bored and going stir crazy. But some people, it's like wrecking their lives all the way to people who literally lost their life. And I just thought, what time in our world, and at least in my lifetime, I just turned 46, that mm. we've had something globally like that that's literally touching every person's life 
for a negative um, reason in a negative way. And I thought, we need to pray. You know, and I woke up last Saturday about 2 a.m. and I felt God impressing more of that upon my heart and, and through some things that I won't go into. Now, I felt like God spoke to me and mm. said, if my people would pray, I would heal their land. And I thought, man, that sounds like a Bible verse. So I <laughs> the, source of, the source of all knowledge, right? Yeah. Gave me Second Chronicles seven fourteen that basically says, "If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and turn away from sin, I will hear them and I will answer their prayers and I will heal their land." And I thought that's exactly what we need. And so I thought if I can get God's people to gather, whoever would come to pray with me about a handful of things, then maybe we could see God move and do something crazy and exciting. And so, um, parking lot. Prayer and praise 2020. You know, I figure churches are closed, but the parking lots are open. So if mm-hmm. I can get a few churches to be radical enough with me to say, hey, you can use our parking lot, that we will pray. Um, and, and the great thing that goes with prayer is praise. And so basically, there'll be four categories we'll pray for. In between each one, there will be a song. People will be in a parking lot in the lot. They can have their windows up and down, but they can remain in their car. We'll adhere to the social distancing that our state says we should do, and we'll pray, we'll sing, pray, sing, pray, sing, and then we can go home, and we can drive home, hopefully being elated on how we got a chance to to beckon our God to come down from heaven and do something, not only in our lives individually, but globally, for Mm. the sake of Him, to bring people closer to Him. Mm. Oh, that sounds awesome. What would you say to the person out there who's like, man, it's, I'm so sad. Stuff is so hard. I just don't feel like praying. Uh, what would you say to the person who's discouraged like that and not really wanting to pray? Yeah, I would say for those that, that feel like they don't know what to pray or they can't pray or can't bring themselves to pray. You know, prayer, I call it a muscle, right? And a muscle can be weak if you don't work it and it can be strong if you do. Hmm. So it's one of those things where the word of God tells us to pray. And actually in Thessalonians, um, tells us pray without ceasing. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's like this mindset of always be praying, so you got to make yourself do it. Mm-hmm. You know, like come up out of your stupor, take your eyes off your situation and circumstance because that's what has had you in that stupor and put them on the one that redeems you and that saves you. And when you do that, then you'll start having a different mindset to say, you know what, my circumstances won't rule me. It'll be Jesus and his love for me that'll rule me. And now I can come out of this hole or come out of this ball that I'm in the corner and I can get back on the path of um, doing what God wants me to Man, I love that. All right, so now I know that you're going to be uh, a bunch of different places next week. You'll actually be at the Yellow Box on Thursday, May 28th at 6 p.m. But you're you're going to be around a couple of other churches, other church parking lots. Are, are any of other of those solidified? And are there places people can go to learn more or connect with you? Do you have an email address that people can write you to find out exactly where you're going to be? Yeah, I only got one more. And it was a short period of time I had to work with and it's hard getting in touch with people because for some reason pastors are busier now than before. <laughs> and that's just another story. But I have one more church. It's Jubilee Bible Church. It's 900 Foster Avenue, Medina, Illinois. And that's Tuesday, May 26th at 4 p.m. And so um, I'll put my email address. Um, it's com at gmail.com. And you guys can put it out there, too. Just shoot me an email and say, hey, send me those dates again. Um, if you want to help with, like, parking people, if you want to help maybe doing a little setup because we'll have a sound system out there. 
you know, but but nothing else come. And if you are a person that's been devastated or maybe about to lose a business or lose your home, come. And, and we want to pray for you individually because we want to adhere to the social distancing. But we will pray for everyone there and we will touch all of these areas and come expecting to hear from God and see God do something. I love that, man. Again, ldooley.com at gmail.com. And that's happening at least twice next week. And who knows, maybe more in the future, but I can't encourage you enough to at least check it out. And we'll post all this on our Facebook page as well. Lewis, thank you so much as always for your heart, for your leadership and for coming on the show again. Yeah, Brian, Ian, thank you guys so much as always. A joy and a pleasure praying for you guys, man. I know God is using you in a mighty way. So keep fighting a good fight and keep up the good work with you. Hey, thank thanks, you, man. Thanks, man. You too. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. I'm reporting from our treehouse. A bird just flew freakishly close to my head. And <laughs> I am more jittery now than I would like to admit. That was terrifying. I heard him, I heard him yelling. Birds don't yell. I heard him chirping aggressively. And then it like just zoomed right by my ear. And really? uh, I'm so wow. glad that we weren't in the middle of a segment because I yelped like a little child. It was <laughs> super, super frightening. Uh, a couple of things before we get rolling here. Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash the Common Good. Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk and wherever it is you get your podcast. If any of those accounts will allow you to either subscribe, rate, review or share, it does really help us out whole lot if you wouldn't mind even just a little retweet every once in a while you'd be amazed at the wonders that would do not only for the show but also for our hearts and uh brian and i are both pastors so every once in a while we come at a story or a topic from a pretty like local church pastoral perspective we try to always broaden that out because we know that you know very few of you listening are vocational pastors although i will say you are all ministers if you're a christ follower but um there is a lot to be said though about at least our particular concern with like pastoral burnout, pastoral mental health. We've done a number of stories, unfortunately, in the last year and a half, either of pastors taking their own life or pastors being removed from leadership or sometimes both happening in the same story. So there's a, an article that I found and it says the coming pastoral crash. And that, that of course, kind of piqued my interest. So why, why don't you get it, get us into this a little bit? Yeah, I'll just read the first paragraph because I think it's really powerful. He says, I don't want to be a prophet of doom, but as a minister in touch with many ministers, I see a coming pastoral crash, and I'm not sure we can stop it. The impact of the world response to COVID-19 will be felt for many years to come. It will be felt in every career field and in every home. This post does not diminish the hard work and adjustments being done by first responders, law enforcement, healthcare workers, and the educational structures. But from this author's perspective, those who serve in ministry are in particular danger for several reasons. And then he's going to get into the reasons. Uh, but this is uh, it's a pretty honest article. And uh, it highlights something that, um, that that I think there's some truth to that, that pastors have had to do a lot of uh, stuff that's that's that we're kind of not used to that, that when it settles down at some point that there might be a crash that follows. I think this is good warning right here. Well, he actually gives uh, 12 different reasons, 12, 12 particular dangers that he believes pastors are in. So I want to highlight them quickly, and then he gives a couple of suggestions. So we'll get through whatever we have time for. But the one, this one, this first one I've been thinking a lot about, it says uh, yeah. they're serving in ways for which they have no training or expertise. At first, this is energizing and sparks our creative thoughts. Brian and I had talked about this a number of times. There's like that adrenaline, right? 
This energized feeling does not last, however. It is neither exciting for the minister nor the congregation after a month or so, which I would totally agree. Why don't you take the next one? Yep, they're doing their best but unable to keep up or to keep it up. Frankly, it is draining. Ministers fall into the comparison trap. Some ministers were already online and have everything they need in place. Many of us, however, did not. We look at what other churches are producing, and that makes uh, our efforts feel not worth it. It's that whole comparison trap we talked about. Yeah, next, he says they're worried about ministries that are unable to operate and if they will be able to operate later. Some of the ministers that are very important ministries that are very important, such as support groups, specialized Bible classes uh, and the like, uh, may be unable to meet the people who utilize those types of ministry needs. Uh, the su- Oh, boy. Sorry. <laughs> the people who utilize those kinds of ministry need the support. Still, they are just unable to do so in the room together. Young people are missing out on the fellowship that can strengthen their young spiritual walk. The mental and physical health of our congregation is a huge concern, which I would totally agree. Next one, they're exhausted. Less gathering does not equal less work. Amen. If a minister is worthy of his or her calling, they're not afraid of hard work. Some members might assume that since there's no current meetings at the church building, that ministers have a lot of free time. When I talk to ministers, I get the opposite impression. They are doing things that they are not accustomed to doing. There is an endless array of glitches when it comes to online ministry. More, the mind of a minister is constantly thinking about how to bless his people and community. And the response to COVID-19 makes this more difficult to navigate. Yeah, this next one's so true. He says they're not feeding their souls. Perhaps some ultra self-disciplined ministers are growing during this season. But what I observe is that they are so involved in this new ministry model that they have no downtime. One friend said that he thought during the stay-at-home time he would read many books and that uh, that he had on his to-do list. Not so. And I, I would add myself to that category. Yeah, this next one's important. The future's cloudy. Ministers like to plan ahead, forecast a visionary approach to the work, and proceed with energized hopes. However, like everyone else, ministers do not know what happens the next day, much less the next five Sundays. Hmm. Contingency plans can be made, but one never knows what the next steps ought to be. From everything I've read, we're looking at a resurgence of the virus in the fall, this author writes, and what one government official called possibly a long, dark winter. Yeah, just in the interest of time, I'm going to read the headings of the uh, the yep. last remaining ones and then get to his suggestions. Uh, what else he offers is the collapse of the job and financial markets impacts churches. We've talked about that a lot. Uh, they are physically not healthy. They have conformed to a seven-day schedule. That's mm-hmm. interesting. They are unwilling to take time off. Guilty. They do not seek out mental health. We've done better there. They are in dangerous spiritual territory. And then he uh, he talks about the best strategies that he knows. He gives two suggestions. Uh, ministers must commit to ministering to their own hearts first. He says ministers must commit to look out for one another. And I would say, and again, we got a couple minutes left, but just he was reading this, thinking about the pastor friends of mine who fit in one or many of these categories. Let's be praying for our pastors. That feels a little self-seeking because Brian yeah. and I are both pastors, but man, as the older I get, the less sheepish I get about asking for prayer. Just like, Obviously, a lot of people need prayer right now. And I'm thinking of like healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, people who are, you know, having have never really even taken a day off in, in the midst of all this. Um, and pastors, I would include in that, that I think pastors need our prayers. Absolutely. Absolutely. He says ministers need to commit to looking out for one another. Uh, that's so great. I don't know. You work in a in a church that's got lots of a network, uh, but I've over the years made sure to have other pastor friends that I can kind of uh, bounce ideas off of. Uh, complain, you know, who don't have a vested interest necessarily in my church, those types of things. And so I think this is so important. So many times pastors, uh, 
I have found don't have other pastors to talk to. Uh, and, and there are certain aspects of the job that only people doing the job, like a lot of other jobs, that's the case too, right. can only understand. And so I think this is really important. If you're a pastor out there and don't have other pastors, uh, I would say search it out. If you need to call us, we'll, we'll talk to you. But I think this is really helpful at this time. Or honestly, even send us a message. As Brian mentioned, yeah. you know, we're part of the New Thing Network. And uh, if I could connect you with other churches or pastors in the area, even if you're not in Chicagoland, I would love to serve you in that way. If there's a way that yeah. I can connect you with uh, a group of other pastors, you don't even need to be of the same denomination or right. honestly, even the same geography at this point. Like we just kind of need each other. Brian, I'm curious in the like minute we have left here, what of the six that we didn't really get to take a deep dive on most interests you? Those last six there. Yeah, I think the seven day schedule one is is interesting. I think that a lot of us, myself included, when we got out of our normal rhythms and you're home and things are kind of cloudy as to when am I working? When am I not? Uh, everything's online. I think it became really easy and and it became really easy to just work all the time and not have a day off and not take time off. Um yeah, that's the one I think is really interesting because over time that just leads to burnout. You just can't run that hard all the time. Yeah, and I would, and we've talked about this a number of times. And then, you know, tragically, even the news of Darren Patrick just a couple of weeks ago, pastors seeking out mental health, I just I think is really, really important. We have got to move past that stigma that it is somehow in any way yeah. a reflection of your character, or your leadership capacity or any of that stuff. So, again, this is on our Facebook page. Highly, highly, highly encourage you to check it out. Send it to a pastor you know. If you are a pastor, send it to other pastors. Uh, I think this is a really, really helpful, concise list of things for us to kind of go after. Well, coming up in the second hour, we have some good news to share. We're also going to talk a little bit about grief. And why not? Let's talk about Aunt Becky. That's all coming up next here on The Common Good. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Aunt Becky. We're going to talk about grief in the church. And we're going to share some good news. That's all coming up next here on The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, still in a treehouse. I know that some of you are concerned. Like, Ian's cracked. Now he's doing the broadcast from a treehouse. And that is very possible. I would not rule that out yet. But my goodness, so nice to be breathing real air. And I'm like <laughs> looking, looking at a tree instead of a blank wall in a windowless basement. But uh, if you're in a windowless basement or a treehouse, either way, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, wherever it is you get podcasts, subscribing, rating, and reviewing. Every time that you subscribe, rate, or review, an angel gets its wings. That's that's true. That's science. So I think that's uh, true. Yes. If you wouldn't mind, all of that helps out a whole lot. You can do the same on the Facebook page. You can also send us messages there. If you come across an article or a character or even a topic, you're like, man, this would be a great segment for the common good. Send us a message. We would love to hear from you. And then you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at common good talk. Ooh, and that bird just flew past me. Ah, boy, that bird is going <laughs> to attack me, guys. This is, is going to happen. This is going to happen on air. And I'm going to be. I love it's this. Gonna be terrifying, but we're gonna we're gonna power through. I mentioned that we're gonna talk about Aunt Becky, which is not her real name, but a lot of you know that she's been in the news. But I didn't want to spend the whole segment talking about her, so I found a different article that talks about some stuff that happened today in history. Why don't you talk to us about that, Brian? From well, there were two really fascinating ones as I read through this. This I love like this kind of history stuff on this day, forty years ago today. Pac Man, which was the groundbreaking video game. 
It was first placed in an arcade in Tokyo. Did you know it was invented by a young man who loved pinball and he called it Puck Man? Uh, <laughs> but it what? became Pac Man and became the most successful arcade game of all time. And uh, and uh, he. He said, when I started drafting up this project in the late 1970s, the arcades were filled with violent games all about killing aliens uh, with only boys hanging out there. He wanted to make arcades into places that girls and couples might enjoy. And that's how Pac-Man came about. I Ooh. love Pac-Man. Are you a fan Ooh, of Pac-Man? Oh, who's not a fan of Pac-Man? Come on. I don't know. I don't know. Right, but here's, me, here's another one. 1967 on this day. Uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, the longest-running United States children's television series, aired its very first episode this day in 1967. Isn't that wild? Let me read the other ones they have listed for us here. Uh, U.S. President Ulysses S. Grant signed the Amnesty Act. Harvey Milk was born, the war veteran who became the first openly gay politician elected in California. U.S. President Lyndon Johnson announced his Great Society goals to end poverty and racial injustice. Serbian tennis star. Oh, boy. I should have stopped at Serbian tennis star. Oh, that's Novak Novak. Djokovic. Oh, yeah. I've been told uh, I look like him. Oh, really? Okay. Uh Pull pull up a picture. He was discovered at six years old uh, and who 17 years later won three Grand Slam titles. Swedish professional golfer Annika. Oh, boy. That's Annika Sorenstam. I'm with you. I got you. Thank you. Appreciate it. And then can you say this one? Tokyo Skytree. <laughs> oh, nailed it, Brian. <laughs> I was like, to the public as the tallest tower in the world and the second tallest man-made structure on Earth. And there's a whole lot. I got to start visiting this part of the website more often because there's a lot of really. And it's also embarrassing because now that you've said their last names, I already knew them, but I, I guess yeah. I've never really seen them. See them. Mm-hmm. Novak Djokovic was discovered at six years old. That's crazy. Like, that he's like a tennis prodigy at that age is nuts. I'm going to chalk it up to being distracted by these birds that have been circling my head. Are is they that still fair? there? Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just recently discovered in this segment that I'm sitting right under one of their nests. So oh, no. They're probably a little ornery, and this is, uh, this is only going to get worse. All right, so here's Aunt Becky news. Were you following this story at all? A little bit. I forgot about it. I followed it a lot when he first came out, and then I forgot about it until it was in the news today. So it's the longest headline I've ever seen. Lori Laughlin and her husband plead guilty on Zoom court, where prosecutors read email from them admitting they worked the system to get their daughters into college after taking joke plea deal. What's going on in this story? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that headline covers a lot of it, but Lori Laughlin, yeah, right. <laughs> they finally said that they are guilty. They paid $500,000 to get their two daughters into USC as part of a college bribery scandal. Uh, she, she will serve just two months in prison, and her husband will serve five months as part of the deal. Uh, the pair had been facing 40 years behind jail, behind bars before they took the plea deal. And so this smaller sentence uh, sparked an outcry among critics. Uh, they said they were innocent, claiming they were giving the charity until taking the deal. You might remember Felicity Huffman. She served 14 days after paying $15,000 to get her daughter into another school. Somebody else, another parent, Douglas Hodge, was sentenced to nine months. But you might remember this scandal, but they paid five hundred grand to get their yeah. two daughters into USC. And what made this story, besides it being sensationalistic, you know, like you said, Aunt Becky uh, from Full House, uh, Felicity Huffman, like these people that we know. Besides that, what made this story so ugly was just 
it was rich people essentially buying their kids into school uh, and yeah. the school, you know, not the schools necessarily, the whole schools, but people within the schools going along with it, faking transcripts and other things. Uh, and it just rubs so many people the wrong way because college is supposed to be about merit. And uh, it was just like this, really, like they went to this length, $500,000. And then when you heard her daughter talk, they were like, they didn't really want to be in college anyway. And uh, it just got ridiculous. It's faking, pretending to be on the on the. Uh, you know, the crew team or whatever else. So it was a great story, a huge story of like uh, rich privilege and the things that some rich people were able to do. So uh, they were punished, but to a lot of people, not to the uh, not to the degree they should have been, but at least some punishments coming down. Are you one of those people? Uh you know, I mean, if they were facing 40 years to, to get five months, it seems like a light slap on the wrist. On the other hand, you know, in this day and age, yeah, it seems light, right? It seems light. I was going to say, on the other hand, there, you know, nobody was physically hurt. Nobody was actually hurt. But that's not really what our law is set up to do one way or the other. That's not necessarily the bar. So it probably is light. But uh, I would say at the very least, at least they're taking some punishment. And uh, hopefully this stops people in the future from doing stuff like this. What do you think? Too light or are you OK with it? Yeah, I am. I'm going to be way less gentle than you just were. OK, um, I I think this is insulting. I think it is the perpetuation of what the whole story has been rooted in in the first place. When you think about like, um, oh, what was her name? Tanya McDowell, right? She was sentenced to like five years for using a different address so her kid could just attend school in a better district. Oh, so, really? Wow. Yeah. And stories like that, there's a thousand of them. Now, you know, it is worth noting, Tanya McDowell is a woman of color. And again, not to make it all about that, but there's certainly, I think the outcry is warranted. So no, I don't read the story and go, well, at least they're getting some punishment. Uh, at least at least two months. There's like a $100,000 fine. You know, Felicity Huffman got even less, I think. To me... To me, this is at the very least uh, infuriating <laughs> and maybe maybe even more. So, yeah, this story kind of fires me up, to be honest. It, it feels like uh, an abuse of power. It feels like um, interesting. OK, celebrity weight being thrown around. Yeah, there's a were you I mean, you're, you're familiar with some of those other perspectives, though. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I get the outrage. And I'm guessing that if I'd known other stories like the one you just referenced, sounds like you've done a lot more thinking and a deeper dive on this. I, if I had heard of those stories that you were talking about. And that sure doesn't seem to be fair <laughs> for sure. Right. Uh, and so uh, it does, you read the list of the people and their sentences, they're all really light. And so, uh, yeah, taken in comparison to those other stories you're talking about and uh, the differentiation being amount of money and fame, I could totally see getting really fired up about it for sure. So what do you, what do you do with this though? Like, you know, neither of us are in like a, position to change laws necessarily like what what is the gospel response to things like this in the news hmm. i would think uh a gospel response would be to uh exactly quite frankly what you just had that being some frustration you used the word outrage over the injustice uh, right. The gospel flips everything on its head in which, you know, the the powerful and the rich don't get off easier than those who without, you know, Jesus clearly flipped that on its head. And so I, I would think the response is outrage. I just don't know what you do with that outrage. You know, I, I I don't know what you do with it, but I think you've done a really good job of expressing it for sure. Well, thanks. Um, we've posted this on the Facebook page. We'd love to know where do you land on this? Uh, are you more 
in kind of Brian's response or maybe more mine or somewhere in between? Or do you not think it's a big deal at all? Or are you in the camp like, hey, doesn't involve me. Like I just could, I can't waste any more brain energy thinking about <laughs> other people's lives. Either way, we'd love to know what you think, where you kind of land on the story, what you think a good way forward is, maybe what a Christian response could be. And that's all available on the Facebook page. Well, coming up next, I thought this, uh, this day could use some, we're going to bring back a segment called some good news. We're going to yes. share some good stories that we found from the good news network. That's coming up next on the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for some Good News! Hey guys, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, coming to you live from my treehouse. Some of you think I'm joking. I posted a photo yesterday. A great picture. Great <laughs> picture. <laughs> it's not that good of a picture. It was just me with my laptop and microphone, which, by the way, my microphone is being held by... This microphone stand was intended to, like, mic kick drums, it's not really for these purposes, so it's pretty really? good. Yeah, it was, yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty uh, piecemeal operation up here. But I get to be outdoors, and I'm happy about that. You know what else I'm happy about, Brian? What's that? I'm happy about something cool we're doing at the station that I would love for you to tell everyone about. That is, that is there what we call a segue. Uh, it is this that during the coronavirus pandemic, we are aware that many businesses have had to close their doors or at the very least reduce their hours. But we also know that there are still many businesses that are open and serving the public as best they can. So if you own or run a business that's open and operating, we want to help you get the word out. So right now, go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. It's all one word, 1160hope.com slash open for business. Fill out the brief form and we're going to compile all of that information and share it with our listeners. Totally free. No catch. Go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. I, I've said it before. I love that we're doing that. I hope that people are taking part in that. Even if you're listening and you don't fit that category, but you know someone who does, like be a pal and send it their way. I think they would really appreciate That's it. That's right. All right. So That's here's right. a segment from the goodnewsnetwork.org that we've started a couple weeks ago. No, a couple months ago. And uh, their website, by the way, is just phenomenal. I can't encourage you enough to bookmark it, make it a regular part of your weekly habits. But it's just a whole segment where we found some good stories. We know there's a lot of sadness and grief and scandal in the world, and that's probably only exacerbated by the pandemic and the virus and all that. So I like to you know, dedicate every once in a while just a whole segment to celebrate some goodness or some beauty or some generosity in the world. And uh, I got a bunch of articles here. Brian, I'm, I'm going to let you just choose which one you want to go with first. All right. I'm going to go with the world's largest open air gallery was painted by people with learning disabilities and it's breathtaking. Hmm. A team of artists has transformed a series of drab cement silos into the world's largest open air museum. And they did it with inclusivity at the forefront of their mission. Spanish artist. Ooh, that's going to be a tough name. Okuda San Miguel first started painting murals on the structures as a means of beautifying the region of Ciudad Real. As Miguel continued to ramp up his artistic mission, he partnered with an organization that provides work to local people with learning disabilities and special needs. Since collaborating with the group, Miguel has helped to paint 10 different silos across the region with breathtaking works of art. His team is now working on transforming the interiors of the silos with a kind of universal church for everyone, all religions, all genders, all races. What a cool story, especially uh, the fact that this is being painted by people with learning disabilities. What a cool story. I feel like we should create uh, like a sound effect 
between each good story. It's like, ah, that's a cool story. Or <laughs> I thought you were going to say, oh, but no, now, you, but that's no, a cool that's, story. Well, because it can't be off for all of them. They're not all awe type stories, but like, now that's some good news or something. That'd be great. We're just like, good news. <laughs> like, kind of we're just with someone screaming good news at you. <laughs> Aggressive. Good news. <laughs> Real aggressive. Yeah, these are all. Let's keep workshopping. Maybe when yeah. our microphones aren't hot. Um, <laughs> all right. This next one. Compassionate texting system allows you to send kind messages to frontline heroes and get them in return. People are so smart. As millions of courageous healthcare workers continue their work to combat the COVID-19 crisis, the ingenious new services allow you to send unconditional messages of love and support to frontline heroes and get one in return. The text for humanity switchboard created by Cinch in partnership with Mental Health America, MHA, originally launched in January to combat online negativity and promote the sharing of positive messages between strangers. To date, more than 83,000 messages of positivity have been exchanged across 85 countries. As the world moves into the next phase of the virus, hashtag text for humanity now enables people choosing to participate to identify themselves as either a frontline worker or someone living in isolation. In turn, Senders can choose the group they would like to send a personalized message of thanks and support. Frontline workers include anyone from nurses and doctors to delivery drivers and grocery store staffers, people performing the vital jobs that are keeping society going. It goes on and on to talk a little bit more about the specifics of this program. I just think this is the kind of idea that I step back and go, bravo, humanity. That's just a that's just a good, wonderful idea. Yeah, but you know what that is? That's good news. Oh, boy. See, that's. More unsettling than I think you realize. That's more unsettling <laughs> than the bird that flew past my head a couple minutes ago. All right. I'll, we'll keep workshopping. Next one. Ten-year-old gives the gift of art to more than 1,500 kids in shelters and foster care during wow. quarantine. Wow. This 10-year-old girl has single-handedly managed to give the gift of art and joy to more than 1,500 kids in foster care and homeless shelters during the COVID-19 shutdowns. Chelsea Fair is the mastermind behind Chelsea's charity, a nonprofit that she started with her parents back in August of 2019 as a means of donating art kits to at-risk children. Since she was seven, she was begging me and her dad to start a charity, her mom said. She was so persistent. Every couple of months, she would ask, are we starting Chelsea's charity yet? When she was turning 10, she asked us again, and we decided it was time to go for it. As a means of inaugurating the charity on her birthday, Chelsea asked people to give her art supplies instead of birthday gifts. And after that initial batch of donations helped to supply several dozen art kits for children in need, Chelsea continued her efforts by collecting supplies for the kits for the kits through her charity. The tenacious sixth grader who lives in Danbury, Connecticut, has since donated hundreds upon hundreds of art kits uh, to people uh, in need. And then it goes on to talk about how during this COVID-19 pandemic, she's been able to give uh, 1,500 art kits uh, to kids that wouldn't otherwise have them. They're filled with crayons, gel pens, coloring books, paper, colored pencils. Uh, what a cool story. But also you realize that that some kids just have just uh, just a perspective also that's really challenging. Like, wow, a 10-year-old going, I want to do this is is so encouraging. Yeah. What were you doing when you were 10, Brian? I was not making art kits for people. That's for sure. No, I was a good kid. What are we talking about? But I didn't have charity on my mind. We'll put it that way. <laughs> like you would, uh, you would like stop somebody if they were tripping or something. But for sure, I'd help an old lady across the street. No doubt about that. But would you? Did you ever uh, do that once in your life? 
No, I, uh, but I'm waiting. If that day, if that comes about for me, I'm going to help that lady across the street, though. I, I can believe, tell you yeah, I think this is your year, Brian. This is yes. definitely going to happen for you. All right, last but not least from uh, some good news. Oh, what should my reaction to your story be? Hmm. Uh, good news. Now that's some good news. Yeah, like, <laughs> a little, Almost a whisper. All right. Um, yeah. Chef Andreas's charity is injecting $50 million into restaurants by paying them to feed the hungry. Although many restaurants have struggled to stay afloat during the coronavirus pandemic, many of them have also found innovative ways to stay in business while serving their communities. In California alone, the state is now paying restaurants to deliver food to seniors in need. Wait, what? Did you, did you know that? I did not know that at all. That's nuts. Now, chefs around the country are seizing the moment by keeping restaurants open while simultaneously delivering food to those who need it most. The newly launched Restaurants for the People. I also didn't know about that. That's amazing. The new Restaurants for the People initiative was launched by World Central Kitchen, a Washington, D.C. based charity whose food first responders program has already served millions of meals to people in dire circumstances around the world. Uh, Internationally recognized chef Jose Andreas founded the organization after visiting post-earthquake Haiti in 2010. Over the course of the last, WCK uh, has made headlines for feeding furloughed workers during the uh, during the U.S. government shutdown, first responders fighting the California wildfires, hurricane-ravaged communities, and more recently, people struggling amidst the COVID-19 crisis. Again, this isn't a two-year-old kid, but this is certainly another example of somebody who, like, stepped back and asked, okay, what do I have? What am I good at? Let's bring some good to the world. I just love I love innovation like this yeah. because it's even though like I don't I don't have any field of expertise at all similar to what they're talking about, but it still is I just find it so inspiring. Yeah, they're gonna cover the cost of one million meals prepared by more than four hundred restaurants across the US. I mean that's, that's nuts. This is no small amount of meals that they're doing right here. And uh, you know, I think there's one of the coolest things about this website and just these kinds of stories is you're never there's there's never a lack of stories of people in dark times using their particular gifts and creativity uh, to help other people and to try to be part of the solution. Like a lot of us, you know, we there's a lot of darkness. There's a lot of things to complain about. But to be inspired by the people who are going, you know what, I can make a difference with this skill and putting that skill uh, or that passion to work in order to help other people is is really inspiring. And to do so in a way that's coming together, right? I, I think that, right. like, this is such a global issue, such a massive undertaking. No single one of us is going to be able to do nearly as much as multiples together on mission, whatever that mission is, wherever you're located, whatever makes your heart beat fast. All of that, I think those are just really good, helpful questions, especially now. Like, what is what is mine to do in the midst of all of this? Well, that's before right. we get to interweb insanity, we're going to take one more deep dive of this show. And here's the headline. It says, letting grief come to church, five ways to welcome what may feel unwelcome once doors reopen. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And a couple of places you can find us. We'd love for you to find us. We're not playing hide and seek or anything. So you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. There you will see our illustrated mask-wearing faces. That is a great place to not only see what we're talking about or going to talk about. There's a place for comments and dialogue. We love the fact that there's a rich diversity of people listening. So feel free to weigh in there. Also, you can send us a private message if you come across an article or a story or a person or a perspective. Or even if it's something that kind of comes to mind for you, like, oh, I'd love to hear their thoughts on this. Or this could be an interesting discussion. Send us a message there. You can also find us at 1160hope.com slash the common good 
on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. Plus, Brian, did you know that we're podcasted? It's I've true. heard this. I've heard yeah. this, but please tell me more. Oh, man, I can't wait to tell you more. So there's a podcast and whatever platform you're comfortable using, we're already there. And it does, honest to God, help us out when you subscribe, rate, and review. You can also tell Alexa just to play the Common Good Radio Show. And Brian has confirmed that you can indeed just do that. But all of that does help us out a whole lot. And maybe sharing it with a friend if you feel so inclined. Brian and I are both pastors. So we talk a good deal from the perspective of pastors or churches or Christ followers in general. And uh, this article... For me, and again, I know that Brian loves lists, so I really did it like as, an act, <laughs> as an act of love and service toward you. you. But the headline reads, Letting Grief Come to Church, Five Ways to Welcome What May Feel Unwelcome Once Doors Reopen. And again, this was written before President Trump said what he did today, and I already see a whole slew of other people responding to what he said. Either way, I imagine for a number of people listening, churches might be reopening to some degree faster than they were anticipating. And this, I think, is a really, really timely, helpful perspective on maybe some things to consider once we're actually doing that. Why don't you get us into this article a little bit? Well, I think what also makes this article important and timely is it's written by Clarissa Mull. And if you remember, we talked about her six months ago or a year Mm -hmm. ago, even Uh, her husband uh, tragically died, I believe, in a climbing accident. And she's going to talk about that in this article because she starts by talking about how it's been 10 weeks since we've been in the church sanctuary. We can't wait to be together in person. But she also says, while I'm genuinely excited for the return of gathered worship and interaction, I'm anxious, too. She says, I know all too well how complicated a, re- church, a return to church can be. Like the thousands of churchgoers who will trickle back when the doors we open, our family has endured the complicated task of returning to church with a new unwelcome visitor named Grief. And there she talks about her husband's death. Uh, They said they found to our deep disappointment that the familiar rhythms of our former life now felt strange. School and relationships became awkward and unwieldy. And worst of all, church attendance and ministry, a core family commitment and mainstay of our week grew sporadic and painful. She says, though I had spent almost 20 years in lay ministry, our local congregation felt like the one place to which it was impossible to return. And so she then goes back out more globally and she says, in the coming weeks, our churches, we met with a flood of grief, a unique and painful byproduct of the pandemic. Grief ministry will become important. Uh, And so she's talking about what's it look like to have grief care and to allow the church to be a place where people can grieve. She says, consider these five practical ways your church can prepare for to care for those who will bring grief to the church. So as people are coming in with grief and sadness, how are churches prepared? So let's walk through this list. I'll uh, We can bounce it back and forth. I'll go number one. Uh, integrate lament into worship. During quarantine, many churches have integrated lament beautifully into worship. This does not need to end when church doors open. Hmm. We must continue to lament in worship through song, scripture, and testimony. Faith persists amid sorrow. Lament offers space for those grieving to bring their sorrows before the God who hears our cries and binds up our wounds. Lament in corporate worship also reminds the larger body that there are those among us we must carry gently who need our comfort and care. We remind the bereaved they are not forgotten, that their tears matter to God and that their tears matter to us. And just as a quick shout out again, our friend Aubrey Sampson just wrote a brilliant book called The Louder Song, which is all about this idea of lament. If you're looking for a good introduction into this idea, if you're unfamiliar, cannot recommend enough that book, The Louder Song, Aubrey Sampson, super, super good. 
Uh, number two, develop remembrance rituals. Remembering a lost loved one is one of the simplest but most profound acts of care a congregation can offer. Make remembrance rituals part of the church culture and calendar. Few churches keep graveyards on their property anymore, but this needs not stop congregations from remembering the names of those who are now members of the church triumphant. Years ago, our family's church in the Chicago suburbs hung a plaque at the back of the sanctuary where names of deceased members were engraved. Once a year, the names were read aloud in a service of remembrance. Special remembrance services for each season, listing names in the bulletin for six months after a death, or placing roses on the altar on anniversaries of death are always ways mm. to corporately remember the body's losses. That's really, That's really powerful. good. That's powerful. Number three, train ministry leaders to be grief aware. When I served as director of children's ministries for a church plan outside of Seattle, I always marveled at the thoughts and feelings children relayed uh, during worship. Unlike adults who tend to filter their emotions, children and youth often readily talk about the things that weigh on their hearts. As your church resumes ministry, prepare your leaders to be grief sensitive and grief aware. There are going to be adults and children who need to talk. Lay leaders need a basic understanding of grief and the anxiety that accompanies death and dying. Equip them to answer questions, provide comfort, and listen compassionately. Grief is long-lasting, non-linear, and not something to be fixed. It's the Mm -hmm. natural outflow of losing someone that we love. Uh, Bereavement is not a problem to fix, but an an experience in which leaders can be companions. Once Mm -hmm. ministry leaders understand that a companion in grief need only be present in love, it can alleviate feelings of inadequacy. Wow, this is a really good article. Number four, uh, prepared to offer practical care. For the bereaved, the isolation of grief will linger even after quarantine is over. That's well said. Offering tangible care will provide comfort when those who grieve feel most alone, when it feels as though everyone else has moved on. Add volunteers to the meals ministry, prayer shawl ministry, handyman's ministry, research a grief share or Stevie ministries program in anticipation of providing long-term emotional support. Plan how you will assist families who have had to delay funerals and memorial services because of COVID-19. When doors reopen, your practical care for the bereaved is just beginning. And number five, consider death. With the news of the pandemic filling our ears, uh, we've heard enough talk of death to last a lifetime. Mm. After churches reopen, the last thing we want to hear is about is hear about is more. But for those who grieve, death will continue to play a central role. Coronavirus has called forth an acknowledgement of our own mortality. The church has a gospel for this. As your church resumes regular programming, consider hosting a Sunday school class about grief or end of life issues. Uh, she says, we've watched Christians wrestle with ethical questions amid coronavirus concerns. Let these discussions prompt your church to ask these important questions in small groups or Bible studies. Offer a special workshop in partnership with your local hospice organization to help church members understand the grief process. Mm-hmm. Lead your congregation in thinking about what it means to die well. Man, this is good. Let me just read. I won't. Uh, she ends with a, a bit of a personal story, but before that, she has a paragraph where she says, making space for mourning will make our churches radically alternative cultures, places where bereaved will find deep understanding, empathy, and belonging, even beyond COVID-19. When grief ministry becomes core to our church's mission, nursery workers will also know what to say to the mother who has miscarried and is grieving that her infant won't be on the fall roster. The meals ministry will know how to care for the bereaved husband who's lost his appetite. The church softball team will understand the difficulty of arranging childcare for a dad who now has to raise two young children alone. And in worship, the widow won't be the only one who weeps. That's such a compelling vision, too, because I do feel like sometimes 
not often, but every once in a while, people will talk about like grief ministries like, oh, that's so-and-so's thing. That's sort of like his thing. And they sort of, yeah, we we have a grief small group, but we have a grief thing, but that happens kind of over there. And what she kind of paints a picture here at the end is like, no, doing that well as a church will have mm-hmm. impact across all of your ministries if done well. And I just think, I think she's spot on. I think this is a really important, timely opportunity to have those tough conversations. Yeah, and it's just the reminder that, uh, even on kind of a broader scale, like just remember that your church is made up of people going through very different things. And that, yeah. uh, these last couple months, uh, not everyone's going to come back ready to celebrate and right. ready to be like, Oh, this is great. You know, like some people will, uh, and those people shouldn't be made feel guilty, but, but also be cognizant that everyone's processing things differently. Everyone's been affected differently. Uh, and that to be the body of Christ is to keep all of that in mind and care and love for one another. So what do you feel about a hard right turn then, Brian? This is a hard right turn for sure. I mean, (laughs) I am the one that scheduled the rundown today. I don't know what I was thinking, but maybe I was thinking this would be a good way to end the show to go from that into some interweb insanity. What's that you might be asking? Well, it's stories that our producers have selected that Brian and I have not seen with sound effects we have not heard. That's how we're going to dock this Zeppelin coming up next here on the Comic Good <laughs> on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Woo boy, we're almost there. We made it. That wacky music means only one thing. It is one almost... Almost the end of the show, the segment that I still can't believe we're still doing, but I'm told by pastors, has become a regular source for sermon illustration. I'm not sure what that says about the state of sermons here in the United States, but I do feel a little flattered, a little bit honored, if you will, that this segment is in any way serving other people. Before we dive into that real quickly, Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash common good, wherever it is you get podcasts. If you haven't done any of that, the end of the show anyway you don't really have to pay attention to these stories if you want to navigate over to the subscribe button or the review button or the share button even all of that does really help us out a whole lot just a reminder brian and i have not read these stories yet and we have not heard these sound effects so we cannot be held responsible we were only freshmen so brian why don't you uh <laughs> kick us off uh from new york bir- uh, birds you got birds on my mind now <laughs> Uh, beards evolved so men could take punches to the head. Hmm. Men sporting big, bountiful beards might have a reason to feel more confident, and not just because women might be more attracted to guys who can No, no, them. no, no, no. Hold on. You skipped a oh, word there, Brian. I did on purpose. Going to keep going. The, uh, word, the word there is sexually attracted. It's okay uh, to say the word sexually. Uh, uh. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. We'll talk about that another time. Research shows that flowing facial hair might have evolved to help fight hungry humans absorb better blows to the head, according to a new study published in the journal Integrative uh, Organismal Biology. The findings are the culmination of several research projects by the same team on human resilience, including experiments on the ability of the human face to take a punch and the human hand's efficacy as melee weapons. Fortunately, no humans were slugged in the name of silent science. Instead, the team employed an epoxy composite skull covered in several types of sheepskin <laughs> to replicate a punch. They then dropped a weight on the chin and measured the force via load cell. Bravo! That'll be hard to top. I pity the next tale of interest. 
Yeah, there's a lot more information to that story. That was that was really taking a deep dive there, wasn't it? It really was. So I just had to stop. Yes. <laughs> All right. How about California? What's it like having Elon's old number? She can tell you. <laughs> That's really funny. Anyone trying to give Elon Musk a call shouldn't be surprised if they end up speaking to a 25-year-old Sephora worker instead. Her name is Lindsay Tucker, and she was by chance given a phone number by AT&T a few years ago uh, that used to belong to none other than the Tesla and SpaceX CEO. Since then, California woman tells NPR she's been receiving a handful of calls and texts daily intended for Musk, whom she hadn't heard of <laughs> until, nah. until this phone pandemonium started. I asked my mom, hey, I keep getting these text messages for this guy, Elon Musk. I don't know who this is, Tucker says. My mom's jaw just dropped. The, call, the calls and texts, some of which are shown by NPR, have included a woman volunteering to be launched into space, a South African businessman asking to buy a thousand trucks, and even a message from ex-Disney exec John LaCedar. Ahoy, ahoy. No, you have the wrong number. This is 5246. I suspect you need more practice working your telephone machine. That's really funny. What are uh, the odds? Next one's out of Michigan. Someone tried to recycle a Civil War cannonball. Oh, boy. Do not recycle cannonballs. That was the message from the county commissioner in Michigan on Tuesday after a Kent County resident tried to, well, recycle a cannonball. (laughs) Grand Rapids police evacuated the county recycling uh, center just after noon Tuesday after finding a live cannonball believed to have percussion cap style detonator. Uh, The six-pound munition, initially mistaken for a shot-put ball, came from the Civil War, according to the Department of Public Works. It noted the ordinance was safely the ordinance was safely removed, said the bomb squad. By the bomb squad, Commissioner Phil Skaggs reminded residents to follow the instructions on how to recycle in an amusing Facebook post. If you do find a cannonball, call your local law enforcement and stay away. Cannonball! A helpful PSA here from the Common Good. we got two more. Do we got enough time for both we of them? We do. We yeah, got let's, it. Let's just go for one. This one's from Wyoming. Can't think of the last one we did from Wyoming. No. Two days after reopening, a bison attack at Yellowstone. Yikes. Yellowstone National Park has been shut down for almost two months as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. So naturally, people were excited to flock back there when it partially reopened Monday. The animals there, maybe not so much. Officials report that on Wednesday, a female visitor to the park was knocked to the ground and injured by a bison in the Old Faithful Upper Geyser Basin after appro- uh, after approaching the animal too closely, U.S. Today reported. How extensive the woman's injuries weren't clear. She was assessed and refused transport to a medical facility, and uh, hopefully she is doing okay. Sorry, folks. Park's closed. The moose out front should have told you. And we'll close the week out of Texas. Uh, baloney smugglers caught at border. That's gross. I think that's pronounced Bologna, actually. I know. (laughs) It always looks so weird when you see it. Border (laughs) Patrol agents have seized 590 pounds of smuggled bologna and cold cuts in Texas (laughs) in two different incidents. Uh, The first incident took place May 13th at the Yisleta Point Port of Entry. A driver of a GMC Acadia arrived from Mexico. He did not declare any agricultural food items. The vehicle was referred to... The secondary inspection area were 35 rolls of pork bologna, which is 350 pounds, and nine rolls of pork poultry cold cuts, 99 pounds, were found in the back seat and the cargo area covered by blankets. So that's going to be gross. The second incident happened the following day at the Bridge of Americas. 
The driver of a Toyota Sienna did not declare any goods. The officer searched the vehicle and found 141 pounds of bologna mixed with clothes and rear store in the rear storage area. Uh, the meats in both incidents were destroyed by the agents. My bologna has a first name. It's H-O-M-E-R. My bologna has a second name. It's H-O-M-E-R. Well, that's a heck of a note to end on before the weekend, isn't it? That is something. It is, is also something. worth noting, too, so Monday will be a best of, or as some have said, uh, the best we could find. So <laughs> we yes. encourage all of you, if you're able, to celebrate, to lay low, take it easy as much as you possibly can. And we will be back with new episodes of The Common Good on Tuesday. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.